0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Teaching text comes from Luke 5 verses 1 through 11 if you would like to read along. and followed him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm uh, really glad that you're here. Everyone you know had COVID in January, and so I'm seeing faces I haven't seen for a couple of weeks. I'm so pleased I told you at the end of November that we were going to be doing the church calendar, kind of easing into learning some of these historic practices. Does anybody know what season we are in in the church calendar right now? Epiphany. Ten points to you. Well done. Those points are redeemable for nothing. Uh, we are in Epiphany. Yeah, and in the season of Epiphany, we're, we're taking a good long look at the person of Jesus. And, you know, all throughout the church calendar, we're really looking at his life, but lots of us grow up in the church knowing a lot about his birth, which we deal with at Christmas, and we know about his death that we deal with, especially in Holy Week and his resurrection, but we have limited practical purpose for the stuff in between. And Epiphany invites us to look at the stuff in between, the life and the teaching, the example of Jesus, how he did ministry, and so that's what we're looking at uh, in this season of Epiphany. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we, were, and we looked at that first chunk of Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you were here, you may remember Jesus gets up in the synagogue in Nazareth where he's from and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointing me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. And my friend Peter led us through that first chunk of the text. And then last week, we looked at the second chunk of the text where the people responded to his message and they responded really favorably, Yes. No, they were ready to throw him off a cliff. His, his word, his, his call uh, to, to extend mercy to their enemies was such an abhorrent message they wanted in their kind of tribalistic tendencies to throw him off the cliff. Well, today we're looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, but that leaves a little gap between what we studied last week and this week, and it it struck me in reading those verses uh, that we haven't yet studied that Jesus actually goes and does right then and there all the stuff that He told people He was going to do, the reason His Father had sent Him. Remember, He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He sent me to preach good news to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and, and recovery of sight for the blind, these works of just compassion and mercy. And so we see in verse, uh, th- verses 31 and 32, this is right after what we previously studied. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. He said, I've come to proclaim good news, to teach and to preach. And then he goes and he teaches and he preaches. Uh, Verses 33 through 35 says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon. That's oppression. Uh, You don't want to be possessed by a demon. But there's a man, Jesus encountered these people everywhere he went, uh, uh, possessed by an impure spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus responds, Be quiet! And he said sternly, come out of him. And the demon threw the man down before them and, and came out without injuring him. Jesus has preached good news, and now he's proclaiming freedom for the captives. He's driving the demon out of this man, giving him back his dignity and his liberty. Then we go just a, a, another couple of verses ahead. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Who is Simon? Peter. Yeah went to the home of Simon Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she got up at once and began to wait on him. The handful of you that have seen The Chosen know like The Chosen did a good job with all of these dynamics, but here Jesus is doing works of compassion and mercy. Uh, you know, it's recovery of sight for the blind. It's, it's, it's helping Simon's mother-in-law to be well just because they asked. It's a, wor- a work of mercy and a work of compassion. And then chapter 4, just before the text we've read, uh, ends by Jesus doing something very Jesus-like, which as an introvert I appreciate. It says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And the people were looking for him. When they came to where he, is, where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But Jesus is is constantly retreating to His Father. Here in the Gospel of Luke and elsewhere in the Gospels, we see what is He doing retreating? It's not just introvert recharging time. He's he's going to talk to His Father about everything that He's been dealing with. Now, as we look at the text today, my deep hope is is in looking at the person of Jesus, we we would find this model and invitation of how we're meant to be in the world as followers of Jesus. The New Testament says, as He is, so we are to be in the world, so we are in the world. And so as we read Jesus' teaching and we pay attention to Jesus' manner of being, He's coaching and inviting us to be like this too. And so my deep hope is that we would have this outward-facing posture of, of mercy and compassion to do the things that He does for the benefit of others. Okay, so a little background. Uh, we, we're in Luke chapter 5, if, if you've forgotten, and, and uh, Jesus is going around preaching and te- teaching and casting out demons. Now, teachers are a dime a dozen. Lots of people have content to put out on social media. But if you start driving out demons and healing people, a crowd forms quickly. And this is what's going on with Jesus. One of my teachers in, in, in high school, a Metro Christian, said the biggest, one of the biggest problems in Jesus' ministry was crowd control. Because he starts doing the Isaiah 61 stuff of preaching good news and proclaiming freedom to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind. And people want in on it. And the crowd forms and they follow Jesus. And everywhere he goes, they go. And here in the beginning of Luke chapter 5, we find Jesus at the edge of the lake. And he's so crowded that he needs a little bit of space. And wouldn't you know it, he ends up at just the spot at the lake where Peter is coming in after a night of unsuccessful fishing. And Jesus, seeing Peter coming in, asked permission, hey, can I, can I squat down and, 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 and preach on your boat? And the people can gather around and listen. Now, maybe Jesus, you know, just so happens to end up here and it truly is a matter of just, you know, the right place at the right time. And maybe Jesus does have a true logistical need to sit down on the boat. Some people talk about how... Um, uh, your, your voice is carried better across water. Maybe that's the case. But either way, Jesus ends up near Peter, who's just had a really long night. And upon finishing his teaching to the crowd, Jesus turns around and tells Peter, hey, push out again. Let's give this another go. And Peter is reluctant and probably a little bit agitated. And he's like, all right, I don't want to do it. But because you asked me to, I'll do that. And uh, he, you know, he does what Jesus says, surprise, surprise, he puts out his nets into the deep, and a huge catch comes in so big that they need to get another boat to help bring everything in. And this miracle catch has no small effect on Peter. Uh, We see his response to Jesus in verse chapter 8, verse chapter 8, you know what I mean. When Simon Peter saw this, this big haul of fish coming in, he fell at Jesus' knees and he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now, you can understand if you've been at something for so long and been unsuccessful and this dude just says, try it like this and it happens big, you're, you're struck. Uh, we're going to come to see that there's, there's more than just this moment that's informing Peter's response To Jesus, but but we do see that Peter is incredulous and he's ashamed. Why have you put yourself in proximity to me? You're a holy man. You're a good man. You're you're beyond my comprehension, so why are you spending any of your time on me? And Jesus responds to Peter with this relaxed imperative. He just says, from now on, you're going to fish for people. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, as if Peter's got a choice in the matter. And here in Luke, he just, Jesus just tells him, this is what the rest of your life is going to be like. From now on, you're going to fish for people. In Luke, Jesus knows that Peter is hooked, and we see in verse 11 that he's taken the bait. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, and they left everything, and they followed him. It's so fun. You all should preach sometime because you'll be amazed when you're desperate to find things in the text, what the Lord brings to the table. And uh, there are a couple of really rich things that uh, stand out to me in in studying the passage. The first thing in thinking about these first 11 verses of chapter 5 is that Jesus embodies the ministry of going out to others. We talked about that last week, actually. Uh, Jesus embodies the ministry of going out to others. He does this with the crowd. He doesn't just go to a speaking venue and put out tickets and people come to him. Jesus has an itinerant ministry. He's on the go all throughout, to this point in Luke, all throughout Galilee, and the people follow him. Jesus is going out to the people. He's not in the synagogue. He's going to them and doing ministry as he goes. He does this ministry of going out with Peter. He goes to Peter's job, which is what this is. He shows up at Peter's place of work. He does a vocational miracle for Peter. So if you're a fisherman, like a big catch, that's a miracle. But if you're working in, I don't know, like stocks or insurance sales or whatever it is that you do, imagine Jesus doing a vocational miracle for you. It's like, holy cow, we sold all these cars or holy cow, like, you know, as a state-owned parent, my kid listened to me today. That is a vocational miracle. Jesus embodies the ministry of going out, and he does a vocational miracle for Peter. And then, in teaching and relating to Peter, he teaches him using metaphors and language that Peter readily understands, fishing for people. In all of this, you could say that Jesus is being incarnational, incarnational. He's going to others, and he's being among them. There's no abstraction here with Jesus. He's physically present fish show up. He touches them. He heals them. He's he's very present. He's being incarnational in the flesh, incarnational. He's also being contextual, which is a really great word for us in thinking about how we relate to our faith in the city of Tulsa. He's being contextual, adjusting his communication and ministry methods to match his context. So if you've not heard this name, uh, I hope that you'll remember it. Uh, The Bishop of C4SO, not C3PO. C4SO is the Anglican diocese, or like the little tribe that we're a part of. Um, We have an overseer, a bishop named Todd Hunter, who's one of the most joy-filled, brilliant, godly men that I've ever met. And Bishop Todd says that in developing strategies for a local church, uh, we must, he says, engineer from the mission field backward, not from the tradition out. What on earth does that mean? Sounds smart. We must engineer from the mission field backward, not the tradition out. By this he means, you know, as the bishop of a bunch of Anglican churches that, uh, you know, as Anglicans we don't just say, hey, we want to start a new church, so let's take the Bible and let's take the book of common prayer and go to a new place and just start reading the liturgy together. Says that's not what we do. That would be starting from the tradition and just hoping that it works in the context. That overlooks contextualization. Instead, what we do is we start with our context, our mission field. We learn its terroir, its history, its people, its hurts, its needs, and then we determine what are the most effective ways. Uh, to invite these people into a relationship with Jesus and to cultivate a church that's in a way that's contextually and incarnationally appropriate. How, based on what we know of the unique soil of this, this city and the, the history here and this group of people, how can we invite this group of people into a, a life shaped by the gospel or a cultivating a community shaped by the gospel? Context matters. The mission and the convictions stay consistent, but the methodology to achieve the mission adapts to its context. And we see Jesus doing that here. If he's talking to Matthew, the tax collector, he's going to be less likely to employ fishing imagery. He's going to have conversations with people in ways that they can understand it. Now, as we think about making disciples in Tulsa, and even within Tulsa, you might think about your unique little circle of influence. If, if you're at the University of Tulsa or if you're in South Tulsa um, or, or considering all the people that are new to Tulsa, as we think about making disciples in Tulsa or you think about making a disciple in your place of work or your neighborhood, it's, it's appropriate for us to ask, in what ways does, uh, do the, the history... And the experiences and the socioeconomic conditions and the needs and passions of of this little place, my context, inform the way that I engage with this group of people. And we have to do some cultural exegesis, some culture study, some, some contextualized curiosity to effectively do incarnational ministry in the way that Jesus does it. We were thinking in these terms when we started the church uh, just four years ago. Four and a half years ago, I stepped out of my responsibilities at Asbury, and a group of us started praying and planning for how to start a new church. Um, I have a kid that's, that's four and a half years old, and like, the, church, the church and the kid are right there together. We're, um, you know, we're potty trained as a church, I'm, I'm happy to report. <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, what do I know of Tulsa? I'm a Tulsa. I've been here all my life. What do I know of Tulsa? Well, Tulsa has a lot of churches. Um, We're not starting something because we can do something better than anybody else, certainly. (laughs) You've been around. (laughs) Well, Tulsa has a lot of churches, and, and Tulsa has a lot of back doors to churches, and how many of us know people who have been in and out of any number of churches just hurt sometimes really, really big churches with high production and, and, and people can sometimes be used like cogs in a machine and they get burnt out. And, and, and we know so many people who perhaps were raised in the church but haven't continued in the way of Jesus because of hurts or excesses. In and, and what way in starting the church ought we to take those things into consideration? And so um, even things like all the lights are up right now so you can not only see me, but you can see each other. Well, that's in the interest of not just creating a speaking forum, but cultivating a community. I want us to be able to see each other, have an imagination of us-ness in starting a church because the church is not the building or, or the service or me. The church is the people. I want us to be able to see each other. And similarly, uh, we could make the music way louder. Some of you are like, it is as loud as I can handle right now. Uh, but we, could, we, we try to keep things relatively simple because I want us to hear each other. All of this is in the interest of, of uh, developing this imagination of us-ness and it's not without you know it's not a mistake that lots of different people get up to lead prayers and read scriptures and it's not just paid staff it's because like we're the church paul said when you get together everybody brings something to the table we could do even more but all of this is like what do i know of the city of tulsa and the hurts and the excesses and and sometimes the glamour of church ministry And how can we bring things down a notch And encoding some of those hopes and that meaning into the launch of our church, it meant a lot to me when my friend Scott came early in the life of the church and described our worship gatherings with two words that I really liked, which was comfortably clumsy. I thought, that, that's what we're going for. It's contextualization. Jesus embodies this, this ministry of contextualization and incarnation by going out to where people are and speaking their language. The second thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus does precisely what he tells Peter he's going to teach him to do. Did you notice this? Do you appreciate how interesting this is? He tells Peter, I'm going to teach you to fish for people while he's fishing for Peter. He models what he's teaching him to do. Edwin Friedman, who's my favorite mad scientist, says, followers rarely rise above the maturity level of their leaders. This uh, certainly applies to parents. If you want your kids to be more responsible, focus on your own development and responsibility. Uh, This certainly uh, applies to those of us who employ others. Do you want your employees not to waste time at work? Well, you quit wasting time at work. You get the idea. Henry Cloud says that leaders get what they encourage and what they prohibit. And most of what we get in terms of our work culture or church culture or family culture um, is encouraged, encouraged and prohibited based on the stuff that we do. And so bearing all that in mind, we see that Jesus is not asking anything of Peter that he himself is not willing to do and actually doing. And this dynamic, by the way, is something that keeps me, like I could say it gently, like humble and sober in being the pastor of the church. It's like, gosh, if that's true. Well, thank God Jesus is like the senior pastor of the church. Um, And there could come a time that I get hit by a bus. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, But the church, like, we'll find another pastor. The church will continue. Um, Jesus embodies what he wants his followers to do and to be. And so a question for each of us is, am I modeling the behavior and the values that I hope to encourage in others? Or even in thinking about like engaging with the local church, if everyone engaged in the local church exactly like you did, what kind of church culture would we have? If everyone engaged in the world or in their workplace exactly like you did, would the church be closer to or farther away from faithfulness? Uh, This this mindset is a shift from uh, obsessing with what's wrong in others to taking personal responsibility for how I can grow myself. It's a shift from critique or passivity to uh, creative cultivation. And Jesus does this. What He asks of us, He models for us. And the third thing that I want to share from the text is the way that Jesus fishes for people... Excuse me, the way that Jesus fishes for Peter models how we should relate to people outside of God's family. The way that Jesus relates to Peter models how we should relate to others outside of God's family. So, note three things about how Jesus invited Peter to become a disciple. At first, and this was not immediately evident just from the 11 verses of chapter 5, but reading, and this is why you should read good chunks of scripture at a time. The first thing we see is that Jesus put himself in Peter's relational orbit and gained credibility. Jesus put himself in Peter's relational orbit and gained credibility. What do I mean? Well, uh, the scene at the lake was not the first time in Luke that Jesus and Peter are interacting. You go to the end, just verses uh, earlier in Luke chapter 4. Jesus left the synagogue and he went to the home of Simon. And again, Simon is Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her, which, of course, he did. I don't know if they knew each other before, if this is one of those somewhat random, you know, healings that Jesus did, but now, you know, they later put the name on it because, like, whoa, did you think that was actually Peter's mother-in-law? I don't know how exactly it went down, but Jesus became acquainted with Peter. And in healing his mother in law, he carried himself in a way that gained trustworthiness and credibility. He put himself in his relational orbit, and then he behaved around him in such a way that increased his trustworthiness and his credibility. Now, sometimes it's effective to just randomly go up to strangers and share the gospel. This happened a lot at, when I went to ORU at 81st and Lewis in the Walmart. I was watching fellow classmates, and honestly, I admire their courage. I was watching fellow classmates all the time, like, walk up to people and ask if they could pray for their healing or passing out tracts and that kind of thing. And while that's sometimes effective, I I generally dislike evangelistic efforts that are not relational in nature and aren't built on some kind of relational equity. Step one in reaching out to someone evangelistically, even if you don't quite use that word, reaching out to them, like, as a Christian, is to get to know them and to build relational trust. Jesus does this. He put himself in Peter's relational orbit, and he gained credibility. The second thing that we see Jesus doing is that he prayed. At the end of chapter 4, you know, he's done all this ministry. He's been with people. He gets, you know, almost thrown off a cliff in Nazareth, and he, he retreats to go and spend some time with his father. And though he's interacted with a lot of people, Peter is the only one who's mentioned in that latter part of the text. Even the mother-in-law who's healed, like Deborah or whatever her name is, she's not named. Only Peter is named. And I don't think it's a stretch, too, too much of a stretch of our imagination to think that Jesus, having retreated from this crazy day, is in the presence of his father, and he's just reflecting, and he's like, Father, I healed a lot of people yesterday, but I can't get this one guy out of my mind. I just keep seeing his face. And, uh, you know, he was the son-in-law, this lady that I healed, and I don't know why he's standing out to me, but the father's like, you know what? I think you should explore that relationship. And so Jesus just so happens to meander toward the shore where Peter, of all people, the same guy he was interacting with and maybe praying about overnight, is coming in after a long night of fishing. Take it really seriously if God puts someone else on your heart. If, there's, if it's a neighbor, if it's a stranger, if it's someone you don't know within the church, if it's a person at work and you know they're going through stuff, take that cue seriously as if it's a prod from the Lord for you to reach out relationally. Uh, get to know them, build trust. You don't have to lead with a tract. Don't. You know, every relationship has a natural progression. You crawl, and then you walk, and then you run. You, you build credibility. And trust that in, in, in prayerfully relating to these people that God's going to prompt you and tell you what to do. Jesus had put himself in Peter's relationship, relational orbit and gained credibility. He prayed. And the third thing that we see Jesus do is that Jesus made a specific relational invitation. A specific relational invitation. Now, I hadn't really considered this very much, but you know metaphors matter in the Bible, and Jesus is employing this fishing metaphor to engage with Peter, but there are different ways that you could fish. And, and Peter, who's fishing for a lot of fish at one time, is, is using nets, uh, certainly. So there were casting nets that were smaller ones that you might use while you're wading, and you might get a smaller amount of fish. There were drag nets that could be like hundreds of yards long, and it would be a series of three nets with an inner net. Uh, And then they were called trammel nets, which is um, probably what Peter was using. It's it's to get the stuff that's really, really deep. And Jesus isn't fishing uh, quite like this. I mean, he did some big hall ministry. He did events that, that invited a big group of people to come and listen to him. The Sermon on the Mount, there's a big crowd there when you're casting out demons and healing people, a bunch of people come. There's a place for fishing in that way, casting out your nets, but that is not how Jesus engages with Peter. With Peter, Jesus is more appointed and surgical in his approach. It's more like he's using rod and reel with this particular guy. And he says to Peter, from now on, you will fish for people. I want you to follow me. And likewise, for us, in the context of relationships that are built on trust and credibility, and having prayed about opportunities is right for us to make pointed relational uh, invitations and requests to the people around us. So it could be something as simple as like, hey, do you want to go to church with me sometime? Uh, Numerous people are in our church right now because people have made that ask. For some reason, that feels like church in the 90s to me. Like, because I just remember growing up, like, you should invite people to church, and for whatever reason, we maybe be a bit more gun-shy of those kind of things, but uh, there's studies out there by Barna and others that say if you invite someone to go to a worship service with you, the chances are actually pretty high they're going to say yes. So if you've got a relationship built on some kind of trust, you could ask a person casually, like, hey, do you want to come to worship? Do you want to come to church with me sometime? Or you could, you know, if they seem like they're, they're seeking or they're, they're kind of spiritually inquisitive, you could say, hey, I'm going to read the Bible over lunch. Do you want to, like, study a passage with me? I know that's kind of weird. But what if they say yes? Or like, hey, I know this is a bit, out, bit of the out of the ordinary, but, like, it seems like you have a lot going on. Could I pray for you? That may be, like, the best, best thing of all, especially when people are going through hard stuff. I think I've told you, I'm a big fan of the voice memo prayer. If you're an Apple user, you just, like, hold the microphone button and you send it to them. It takes like 45 seconds, and people always save the prayer. I did this with a neighbor once, and they, I, I, forgive me, I've told you this before, but like a week later, they were like, hey, could you do that again? Just do it. Just a, a simple, pointed, relational request or offer, or it could be as simple as like, hey, do you want to come over uh, to dinner like, with my family tonight? And Just keep it really simple. Um, the, there's a rite of passage for people on our staff uh, that I go to the whiteboard and draw this little two-by-two two chart with an X and Y axis, and uh, I've done it for you all too. It's like one of the things that I just do, and I took it from Andy Crouch, this author, and he, he draws, draws this little two-by-two two chart, and on one axis, you've got authority. Uh, which he explains means uh, the um, uh, willingness to take meaningful risk. No, 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 that's the other one. The ability to take meaningful action, that's authority. The ability to take meaningful action. You can have a lot of authority or low authority. And then there's also vulnerability, which is exposure to meaningful risk. And Crouch, in this book, it's called Strong and Weak, I highly recommend it, it's a little book, says that the sweet spot in life is to have high authority. Don't we all want high authority? but also to have high vulnerability, exposure to meaningful risk. And as we begin talking about things like evangelism and reaching out to people, some of you may feel uncomfortable because we're increasing the vulnerability, the exposure to meaningful risk. If you were to imagine yourself doing something like that, you feel a little bit freaked out. But it's that movement up and to the right, leveraging all of our authority, our experience, our social skills, our knowledge of the Bible, our willingness, leveraging that authority uh, to do something that might fail. That's actually the sweet spot in life. And you could look back on seasons that were difficult for you and you would not want to go back to them, but they were some of your favorite in life. Because while your vulnerability was high, like you rose to the challenge using all of the faculties and resources that God has given you. And like, I'm grateful for it. And I think thinking about that paradigm for us as individual followers of Christ and for us as a church, I find that many of us are bored in our life with God because we accumulate Bible knowledge And we've got all this like biblical authority in the world, but we risk nothing. There's so little vulnerability, exposure to meaningful risk. And so we're just frankly bored in our life with God. And you needn't shame yourself for it. It's like, it's not like, do I need to go do a training on how to be less bored? It's like, no, we just got to try stuff. (laughs) So anything outward facing for the benefit of others in the name of Jesus, like do more of that stuff. For some of you, it may, like you may have some serious heart palpitations when you get those hugs bag to hand out you know, to people on the street corner, but for you, increasing that vulnerability just a little bit is going to be like, really generative for your life with God. Others of you may have suffering or, or exposure to vulnerability that's, just, that's outmatched by your authority right now and you need people to help you out. This does not apply in a, a blanket kind of way, but so many of us are bored in our life with God. Because unlike Jesus, we don't have any of this missionary impulse to go out. And my hope and my ambition, my my encouragement is that what we hope to see happen in our life as a church and as individuals is that we increase the frequency of those relational risks for the sake of others. And it's built upon the reality that, that this is what Jesus has first done for us. Uh, have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Jesus leveraged his authority to enter into the vulnerability of relationships with broken human beings and exercised the greatest, submitted to the greatest act of vulnerability in being crucified for us. In the same way that Jesus has left, left the comfort of heaven to be present with us, to move into neighborhoods like ours, we're invited to do this in big ways and small for the people around us. Leveraging all of the authority and the identity, like the gift of a good identity we've been given as beloved children of God for the sake of others. So friends, I just invite and encourage you to consider how can you lean in to that vulnerability, that exposure to meaningful risk for the sake of others? How can you lean into that discomfort? Who are the people that, that God might be elevating in your life? You should actively pursue them, prayerfully pursue them, and when the time is right, to make a specific relational invitations or offers. Hey, do you want to come to church with me? Do you want to come over for dinner? Can I pray for you? Having those conversations. I would rather us fail actively by doing... I've done so many awkward things in my life. <laughs> I needed to do more of them. In fact um my mother's in here i don't tell me oh, she's here um in high school i used to pick up people all the time like random people on the side of the road and like that was probably really not smart to do for a 17 year old but like authority and vulnerability and I, and I look back on some of those seasons i was like i was probably a little dumb but i was also on to something good it's like oh wouldn't it be cool if we did more of that together as a church Doing for others what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just ask for your help today. Help that you, we ask that you'd help us to remember the great steps you've taken to extend your love toward us. We don't have to climb a mountain to be in your presence. We don't have to find the keys to unlock the next bit of knowledge so that we can, you know, ascend to the heights. But instead, you've come down to be with us. There's no other God like that. You've entered into the lives of, of regular people. You you adapt your message so that we can hear you. I think about uh, all the people in the the 10:40 window, especially in the Muslim world, to whom you just appear in dreams. Think about how you, you gently invite us into relationship through other people. How in our heart language you, you speak to us a word of kindness and a word of truth. So Jesus, would you help us to do this for others? Forgive us for hoarding the authority and the knowledge and the experience we've been given and not spending it on the, for the sake of others. Help us, Lord Jesus, as a church, as we engage with Afghan refugees and children at local elementary schools, and as we send money all around the world, as we read to kids, as we care for one another. Help us to be just people who are comfortable being consistently uncomfortable, because that's what you've done for us. And as we come to receive Holy Communion, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would nourish us on your life that you take this bread and this juice and make it be so much more than just that for us, but a means by which through the Holy Spirit we experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ here with us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. and to your name we pray, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.